on this part of John's gospel as we've gotten to the trial of Jesus, uh, we have seen first his betrayal and we have seen the denial of Jesus. We've seen last week the contempt that's poured out on Jesus. And, and in this, what we're looking at is specifically before Jesus will even suffer on the cross, how Jesus suffers on the way to the cross. And in that suffering, it's part of how we know that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest, that Jesus is the one who can restore what was lost in the world. He can redeem. And last week, we looked at that aspect of contempt, and contempt being this kind of inner sense of moral superiority over someone. And this week, we're going to look at is what happens when that contempt goes public, what happens when that contempt is poured out on an individual and it surfaces in condemnation? We're going to be looking at condemnation. Condemnation in the dictionary just is the expression of very strong disapproval or censure to shut something down, to banish something. In our modern language, to cancel, to condemn. And, and so, again, whereas contempt is kind of usually this internal thing, and, it, and it, we talked last week how it comes out and how it's expressed, it's kind of a, an inner disposition towards someone, a sense of moral superiority, maybe a smugness, but condemnation and is usually expressed and goes public. Now, here's what I should say at the beginning. All, all these things, contempt actually for bad things can be good, um, just like condemnation for something bad is, is actually virtuous. We should condemn certain bad things, right? We should condemn exploitation. We should content or, or, or condemn sex trafficking. We should condemn certain things, and that's virtuous. But also, there can be a condemnation that's negative. When we condemn the wrong things, when we condemn good things. And what we're going to see today is specifically the way this often surfaces is in what we might call mob condemnation, mob condemnation, whereas where good things are condemned, where there's a sense of being swept away with the crowd, of being kind of overwhelmed and almost this irrationality just to con condemning something and censoring and shutting something down, canceling something that is in fact good and condemning it. Uh, one of the things as we get into this passage today that it makes me think of is there, there's a story. Uh, many of you probably read it at some point in an English literature class. Uh, it was a short story by Shirley Jackson called The Lottery. And in this story of The Lottery, there's this village. And in this village, every June, they will, will have a lottery. And the winner of the lottery, really the loser, uh, will be someone who's set forward as a scapegoat. And, and what they realize is there's almost something in us. And what Jackson was capturing in this story was that there's something in almost every society, like this universal reality of like mob condemnation and the need to almost satisfy this, this thing that's in us. And so this village, recognizing this, what they do is every June, in, in order to appease the gods or the fates or whatever it is, it's never really defined in the story, but they, they select an individual and that individual becomes the focus of all of their condemnation, kind of the focus of all of their sins and all of their faults and all of their shortcomings are placed on this individual and they turn on this individual. And they become what's called a scapegoat something we're going to come back to. But there's a haunting way that the, the story ends. As they all pick up stones and they gather around this woman who's been selected, who's won the lottery. They pick up stones and they, they begin encroaching on her. And as they lift them up, it says, to end the story, this haunting line, and then they were upon her. What we're going to see today is we're at the place in the Gospels where the mob <laughs> has come. The mob is carried away in this irrational desire to condemn Jesus, and he's become the scapegoat. And then what we'll see is they are upon him. The question for us is, because I think when I describe this idea of kind of mob condemnation, 
creating scapegoats, canceling, banishing. It starts to kind of trigger some things that we know are happening around us. And the question is, why do these things happen? Why is it that it's this kind of almost universal reality of moving towards kind of like mob condemnation, these irrational, this herd mentality to then move against something irrationally and then condemn whether it's usually an individual? How does that happen? Where does it come from? Why do we get swept up in it? How do we break that cycle, that vicious cycle of mob condemnation? So what we're going to look at today is first, why mobs exist? Why do mobs, or we can say, why do mobs happen? Uh, second, we're gonna look at the vicious cycle of mob condemnation. The vicious cycle of mob condemnation. What's going on in this, and, and how does this happen in our lives? And then second, or third, sorry, uh, how to break that cycle, that vicious cycle of mob condemnation. So uh, I'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word. Lord, when we come to this passage, Lord, we see here Jesus becoming the final sacrifice for our sin. We see here as the mobs turn on him, Lord, and he becomes the focus. The, the scapegoat who carries the sin, who carries the blame. And Lord, the deep irony of how necessary it is that he would do so. Lord, as, as we look at this passage and we think of the dynamics that are here and we, we think of the many layers that are captured here, what this says about us, what this says about you, Lord, would you free us from being swept away in these dynamics? And Lord, free us not, so we're freed from that, that vicious cycle. Lord, would you free us from a virtuous cycle of condoning the right things, condemning the right things? Oh, Lord, a life of delight and freedom from that reality in you. Or would you teach us that secret? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So why do, why do mobs exist? Well, today we come to this famous and also fascinating interaction with Jesus and Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius isn't his first name. Pontius is a title. It's, it's essentially, think of it as like the governor. Uh, and so he's the governor of this, this region. He's the official for this region. And as we saw last week, we're in the middle of all of these crowds forming, uh, this mob forming. And, and what they've claimed is that Jesus is essentially forming an insurrection against Rome. Uh, and, and, and what he's done, Jesus, through his ministry, claiming that he's bringing this kingdom that, as we're going to see, is not of this world, this, this reality, this inbreaking of heaven, this claim is something that immediately, you could say, pokes the leaders in their, in their idols, right? Like pokes them right in the idols, pokes them right in the thing that gives them that sense of security, that thing that they worship, that thing that they find their salvation in, which is their status, their security, their standing with Rome. And so Jesus brought this up, and all the, all the leaders in the midst of this concern, in the midst of this insecurity, they begin to share with the crowds that are gathered. Now, at, at this point, it keeps referring to the Passover. This would have been one of the like, festivals during the year where tens of thousands of people would have been gathering. So at this point, Jerusalem is packed with people. This, it's like the St. Paddy's Day festivals you saw probably Friday downtown or whatnot if you're around. Only imagine that being tens of thousands of people gathered for this, this moment. And in the midst of those crowds, they've been whispering about this Jesus. Why is he up there? What's, what's happening with him? Why is he on trial? Why is he on trial? Because he is trying to form an insurrection, and he's going to ruin our status with Rome. And that, that, that concern, that fear begins to permeate the crowds, and it begins to spread. And, and the anger towards Jesus as the one who would do it, it begins to take over the crowds, and they've, they've come to Pilate. And at this point, what we saw last week is there's not even a, uh, when, when Pilate asked them for the accusations, they don't give him accusations. They don't give him data points. They don't really have a trial. The trial, the verdict is in before the trial begins. You see, this man is evil. And, and so here in the midst of that happening, that kind of foment, that intensity of the crowd all around, Pilate has gone out and spoken to the crowds and they shut him down. They said, kill this man. And so then Pilate comes back and that's where we begin in verse 33 and says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, 
Are you the king of the Jews? Now, uh, imagine why does Pilate say this? And I know over the years when I would read these interactions, I'm like, what, what's going on in this dialogue? And, and he's coming to Jesus and saying, did you, did you claim to be the king of the Jews? They're, they're coming here saying that you're opposed to Caesar, you're opposed to Rome. You've got this whole, this like coalition government or something that you're putting together to rival it. And so did you claim to be the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? In other words, did others put you up to this? Like, did, did, you go, did, did you say this? Are you asking this? Or is this because of everyone's got a narrative out there about me and they've come to you and they said, he said he's king of the Jews. Why are you saying this? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? You can imagine Pilate's going out there, and Pilate's met him, and I was going to see in a minute, he goes, I, I, don't, I, I think this man's innocent. I don't think he's done anything. And so he's going out to this crowd, and you can imagine if you're talking to someone, and you're like, he seems reasonable. He seems sane. He, he doesn't seem to have this vendetta. He, doesn't, he seems to be calm. He, he seems to know exactly what he's doing. He's being respectful. All these things are happening. And then you go out to the crowd, and they're just like ravenous, like, give us the man. Kill this man. And he's coming in and going, what? This is why he says, what have you done? Clearly, there must be something I'm missing if they're so bent out of shape, if there's so much intensity. In other words, Pilate's saying, why is there this foment? Why this intensity? I must be missing something, right? So he's, Pilate's saying, I, I don't really understand. I'm not a Jew. I don't understand what you've said, but you must have done something that's causing this. So the question for, for Pilate is, wh why this mob? Why the intensity? How did we get here? Now, what's interesting is, is Pilate, and to understand the rest of this, the next few lines that we're going to read in a moment, Pilate is essentially coming to Jesus, and he's looking at the symptoms, right? Like if you go to the doctor, and you, 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 if the doctor just looks at the presenting symptoms, but they don't look at the cause, right? Um, they might misdiagnose what's going on. Oh, you have a fever, but they don't see that there's like, you know, your cells are going rogue, and you have cancer forming in your body. And, and so if you just treat the fever, then in fact, you won't be able to actually get to the, the source of the problem. And what Pilate does is Pilate's looking at the symptoms. And he's going, something's on the surface here, and, the, and it's just this foment, what Jesus is going to do is Jesus is going to get at what's underneath all of it. What's underneath all of it. So Pilate's come to him and going, what, what have you done? Jesus gets underneath. Continuing in verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Just saying, listen, to any degree that you've heard I'm a king, it's because I've claimed that I have a kingdom, but that kingdom is not of this world. When the world is used in John's gospel, it's, it's, it's used as a way usually in, in a negative sense in terms of my kingdom is not of the ways of this world. My, my kingdom, the nature of it and what motivates my people and, and what kind of people they become, the nature of the kingdom that I bring, it's not like the kingdoms and the ways of this world. It has a completely different nature. And he says if it's somebody's in my kingdom, if they're following me, to whatever degree you call me a king, if they're following me, then it doesn't produce, Pilate, exactly what you see out there. It produces something completely different. It says, but my kingdom is not of this world or from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Now, if you remember one of the things that I said a few weeks ago, if you, if you ever listened to a good press secretary, a reporter will ask a gotcha question. You know, uh, where were you when you killed that person, right? And you're like, um, I'm not going to accept the premise of that question, which is that I killed someone, right? Like, if you're like, I was with a friend, they're like, ah, you killed him. And you're like, wait, I was with a friend that, you know, you see what I mean? They don't accept the premise of the question. And so he says, are you a king? And Jesus is like, I'm not going to accept the premise of that question because the premise of the question is a worldly definition of king, which means I'm opposed to Caesar, and that's what this whole thing is about. So Jesus doesn't accept the premise when he says, so are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. <laughs> you have a definition of a king. I'm using that word differently, in other words. Uh, for this purpose, I was born. So to the degree I am a king, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. 
Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? What's going on here? Jesus is saying that the nature of the kingdom that I bring, I am a king, I am a ruler, I am a leader, I am one you should follow, but the nature of what I bring is completely different than what is happening all around us. Jesus here says that I, I, I bear witness to the truth. I came into the world. This is something, a theme that we've seen again and again in John's gospel. Jesus has been telling his followers, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Uh, there is a reality I am bringing, in other words, that was lost. There is something that happened in this world that has gone wrong and has been broken. And I am coming to restore the world to what was lost. And that thing I am bringing is in alignment with what is ultimately true, even if the world rejects what I'm bringing. Jesus has been going over this again and again and again. So the question is, what is that lost kingdom? And what does it have to do with what's going on all around? Because Jesus seems to be saying, what I'm bringing has nothing. Is Pilate, you see what's happening out there. What's happening out there is the way of this world. What's happening out there with these mobs that are coming for me and that are just this foment and this searching and this longing and this anger and this angst and this fighting to save what they have with Rome. Do you see that underneath all of it is what at the very heart of what is broken in this world, Pilate? So what is it that was lost? What's it have to do with mobs forming and all of this? We've, again, to bear repeating, being boldly repetitive, Jesus has again and again said in the gospel that the whole point of why I came into the world is so you would be restored to relationship with me. Even more so than the fact that we would be, you hear maybe, you know, maybe this first time you've not really been in a church, but you're like, I know if I, somebody asked me what Christianity is about, I've heard this kind of simple message of it's about God forgives our sins, we get grace, and we can go to heaven. And, and there is that, that there's, there's the forgiveness of sins and God's grace. But, but ultimately what's underneath that is it's not, that's just the way into the kingdom. Your sins must be forgiven. But you're also given a new nature where then you also are able to relate to God. And it's restored. you have a restored relationship with God. And the whole good news of the gospel is that you get a relationship with God again. It's restored. We've gone over this before that the reason why God created the world was God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. From before time began, God was a triune community. And, and God, as First John says, God is love. And, and God created the world not because God one day was sitting around and was bored, right? And was like, well, we need something to do. He's like, how about we create a cosmos? And he was like, that's a good idea, All right? That'll keep us busy for a while. Uh, it, it's not as if God was saying, you know, uh, this idea of like, I need to complete myself. I'm a, I'm a creator. Oh, every creator needs a creature. I must complete myself and make a creation, right? Uh, God was perfectly satisfied in himself. How is it that God was perfectly satisfied in himself? This is, by the way, medieval apologetics, Christianity claiming against all other religions that had essentially a God who was a monad or a God who is just one, who is static in being. Uh, because God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that means that from eternity past, God existed in a loving relationship where he was perfectly satisfied in his expression of love and delight within the triune God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That means then that God created the world as a place to express that delight, as an overflow of delight. As one old theologian said, it's no fault of a fountain that it overflows. God, with this fountain of eternal delight, eternal love, expressed that delight and created a world, a cosmos, that is filled with his glory. And we were created in Genesis 1, humanity, in the image of God, and what that means, one aspect of it, is it means that we have the unique capacity as human beings to relate to God. And at the core of that relationship to God is this inward, this hardwiring that we have in God's image, made from the blueprint of God himself, to be relational beings who delight in relationship to God in his glory. In other words, there's, there's this aspect of us that is meant to be in relationship, seeing God saying, isn't this glorious? And then we, we look at things around and we say, that is glorious. And there's this delight and continuous delight. And that's the picture of the creation story of Christianity. 
that that was how the story was supposed to be forever. And all of the human history was meant to be this cultivating, delighting in God's glory, joining in. This is what worship means. It means to, to delight in good and true and beautiful things, eternal, glorious things, and to, to just spend eternity turning over every facet of it and being in awe of it every morning, the sun coming up and saying, wow, isn't this glorious? Like a child delighting again and again and again. That's what we were created for. Now, at the core of that, catch it, it means that our, our delight, our, our, our sense of desiring something is what one, there's a, a Catholic philosopher named Rene Girard. We've, I've hit on this before in the series, but just to unpack a little bit more. He says our desire is what he calls mimetic, okay? This is where we get our word mimicry, okay? So mimetic desire is desire that is actually, it's not just internal to us, but it's actually outside in, that when we see others desiring something, it causes us to desire that thing as well. And if you think about this, uh, we see this every day with our kids. This example before, if our children, you know, let's say you, you know how you buy toys, everyone buys toys, there are thousands of toys in your home when you have children. And there are all these toys around, and your child will get a toy and be like, I need it, I need it, please, Papa, buy me the toy, buy me the toy. And you finally break down, you buy the toy, and they play with it in the car, and they're like, this is the best ever. And I'm like, I'm the best dad ever, right? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, thank you. I have purchased your love, right? And so, and they're so excited, and then they get home, and they take it out, and they play with it for about five minutes, and after five minutes, they're like, something else happens over here, and they're like, eh, never mind, right? And they move on. Well, then that toy is sitting there, and, and they'll completely lose interest in the toy. And then all of a sudden, a sibling will come in the room, and the sibling is over here, and the sibling has seen him playing with it, and the sibling goes, Wow, shiny new toy, right? And so they run over and they start playing with it. Now the child who has just left the toy behind, who's over here now playing with whatever, or coloring on whatever, or tearing apart whatever, or all the things children do for fun. And so they're doing all these things and then they look over and they see their brother, right? His eyes, look at this. And they're looking at it and they're like, they just start playing with it. And the thing that a moment ago they didn't care at all about, as soon as that sibling begins to play with it, immediately they latch onto it and their heart, like their desires, they go, I want toy, right? And then they come over and they go, I was playing with that first. And then it, you know, after that, Cain and Abel, right? That's where it goes from there. And so you, <laughs> see, this is all very biblical, but you have this. This, mim this mimicry, what happens is we, by our nature, because we are made in the image of a God who is communal, of a God who is in relationship with himself, where something in us is meant to mirror desire and mirror desire to one another. And as we mirror desire to one another, it's meant to, to develop this virtuous cycle of delight in the right things. Genesis 1 creates that we're in, the, we're in the presence of God, and then as we delight in what he delights in, and we see what he's, he's saying, this is true, this is beautiful, this is good, and we go, wow, and our desires mirror his, and then as that happens, we do that with one another, and, then, and it's just kind of like this ongoing cycle, this virtuous cycle of commending and desiring good, true, and beautiful things. When you came in this morning, one of the healthy things every Sunday when we gather as a church is that there's something in us. See, we can, mimetic desire is meant, it can lead to a virtuous cycle where you come in and what do you do? You, you, you walk into church and you're like, you know, somebody's like, what are you? And he's like, I think I'm a Christian, but I don't feel it, right? And you're walking in the church and then you begin singing songs and you look around and you see, you see individuals responding in different ways, some tearing up because they say, this is true in spite of the pain I'm feeling. Uh, this is true in spite of the doubts that I'm feeling. Like some people are just having a moment where they're like, wow, that is a beautiful truth. I hadn't seen it that way before. And as you see that, it motivates you towards truth. That's a healthy thing. That, that's not manipulation. It's manipulation if it manipulates you towards untruth. But if you're motivated and you're seeing truth, what happens is you mirror to one another, I desire that, and it builds a virtuous cycle. And so that mimetic desire, that, that thing that's in us, that's communal, is meant to be when we see good things, that it kind of builds with one another towards things like service and joy and life and love. And it's meant to blossom in that way. The issue is what happens if the thing you desire, because see what Genesis 1 says is that that's why it's so important that our first desire above all others, when we reorder our loves, is God. 
when we put anything in the place of God and something, you could say, of this world, something that can't be our source of salvation, our source of life, becomes our ultimate object that we share, that we focus our delight on, instead of a virtuous cycle, it leads to a vicious cycle. And that vicious cycle that it leads to, this is why we form communal groups where it grows in either a, a virtuous cycle towards delighting in something or it becomes a vicious cycle and it becomes a mob. See, the reason why mobs exist is because we are hardwired and made in the image of God. The reason why mobs are universal, they've been in every culture throughout time. The reason why when we are around a mob, there's something in us that actually pulls us to join in the mob, even if we don't agree with what the mob is saying, is because there's actually something in us. Our desires and our delights and all these things are actually, in many ways, communal, social, whatnot. So it's meant to be that it actually creates an upward cycle, virtuous cycle, towards delight in God and righteousness and good things. But what happens, though, is if we turn our delight to the wrong things, it leads to a vicious cycle of mob condemnation. Let's look at that second before we can come back to that virtuous cycle. Um, one of the things that it says in uh, so Psalm 115, a really fascinating line if you meditate on it. Psalm 115, 8 says, those who make them, it's talking about idols, become like them. So do all who trust in them. Uh, what this psalm was getting at, it's talking about idolatry, and it's talking about if we focus on anything, idol is just a shorthand word for anything in this world that we put in the place of God. It could be our career. It could be, it could be your baseball card collection. It could be your boyfriend, girlfriend. Anything can really become an idol. What an idol is, is it's something that makes the promises to be for you what only God can be. Satisfy you, give, the, give you that sense of love, give you that sense of comfort, security. What happens when we begin to worship things, we become like those things. And it changes us. And one of the interesting things, actually, uh, this, this is even referencing something in Exodus. If you want a fascinating study, go back to Exodus 30 through like 32, 34, and read about when they worshiped the golden calf. Uh, all of the Hebrew descriptors of the people of Israel begin to be the exact same descriptors that they had been describing the cattle with, the herds. As they begin to worship the calf, they begin to come like instinctive cattle and become herd-like and irrational in what they do. There are dynamics that happen when we place our desire on anything in this world that's not God. And it begins a vicious cycle. So what is that vicious cycle of mock condemnation? We see this here with the, with the crowds. Uh, the first is it starts with a shared desire for worldly object. We were just talking about this. You have an object of something in the, in the world, something that replaces God. It, essentially, think of it this way. It's the thing that gives you that sense ultimately deep down functionally in day-to-day -day life of salvation. Now, for the crowds here, that source of salvation that they, they shared and they, they, they looked to with that status like it gave them salvation was Rome. And they're standing in Rome. That was theirs. And they all shared that. Deep down, they all had, maybe it wasn't as active, maybe they didn't even realize it, but there was, there was something in this moment where they said, actually, yes, I believe if I'm going to actually be safe, if I'm going to find true pleasure and comfort and joy, security, whatever it is, approval in life, it's going to be through Rome. It was a shared worldly object they desired. Promise them prosperity, security. And what happens is that desire that they had for it begins to pick up steam in the crowd as the leaders go, we're gonna, they, they desire this and everyone else goes, I desire that too. And they all begin looking to, if we could just have this status, then everything in life would be solved. And it leads to the second step, the crisis of losing the worldly object. See, there, there has to be some kind of a catalyst for this mob to form. There has to be some moment when there's, uh, the, and what happens is that catalyst is Jesus' ministry. 
The, the catalyst is that all of a sudden they go, we may actually lose. They come to them and they say, do you realize, and this is why the people are constantly going and they're trying to make Jesus a king. Have we seen that not throughout all of the gospels, especially John's gospel, where something happens and the people go, he heals people, he forgives people, he raises the dead to life, he does all these things. And then what they begin to do is it says, then Jesus went and he left them because he knew that they're going to come and make him a king. The whole time, these crowds, all the people are conflating Jesus as God come to earth to bring about his kingdom with a kingdom of this world alone. And so they, they, we see this dynamic again and again, and what the leaders are doing is they take advantage of that, and they leverage it, and they say, listen, this is the crisis, this man, and what he's doing, and if you follow him, is going to cause us to lose what we all desire. And then third, then a cause of the crisis is identified and blamed. This is Jesus is the one, the cause. Jesus is the one who's blamed. Now, at this point in history, it happened to be that Israel's standing with Rome was tenuous. And so Jesus becomes, he's identified as the one, his ministry, he's the one to blame for the whole crisis. He's the threat. Fourth then, A narrative is constructed about the threat. So while Jesus has been this whole time saying that my kingdom is not of this world, this is why Jesus is emphasizing these specific things with Pilate. Pilate's going, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? And he goes, listen, listen, listen. Well, however you're defining that, understand this. My kingdom is not of this world. My my kingdom has nothing to do with with trying to, to subvert Caesar and whatever's going on here, my kingdom is something completely different by its nature. And they, instead, though, they twist his words. All this kingdom language, all this good news language. By the way, good news, gospel, is a word that first was used in the ancient world by kings. When they would take over a land, they would send through an emissary, and they would promote a gospel of the new kingdom that was coming. So Caesar, when he came in, he would promote a gospel, and they would tell the people of the good news of Caesar and how he wasn't going to kill all their people or enslave them or whatnot. He would tell them what the new tax rates would be. If you do this, this is the good news of how it will go well with you and your country that we now have colonized. When Jesus comes in and there's a new gospel, Jesus comes in and there's a new, there's a new kingdom language that's now beginning to enter the discourse. And they twist it and they say, do you know what he really wants to do? And they begin to view everything that Jesus says through a lens of suspicion. Does he really mean what he says? And so now they have a narrative that they can all come around about the threat. And then lastly, a scapegoat is attacked. A scapegoat is attacked. In ancient religion, there was this thing called a scapegoat. And, and often what this scapegoat was, was it was a goat, <laughs> obviously. And what they would do with this goat is they would bring it in and they would place all of the sins of the individual on this goat. Normally what would happen is, just like with the sacrificial system, is you'd place your hand on the goat You'd look into its eyes, and you would usually, usually the priest would say out loud for you what you had confessed was your sin. Uh, They would also, all the people would come together. The nation would assemble, and they would all take turns confessing their sins, their corporate sins, their individual sins that led to the corporate sins and polluted society. And the high priest would go, and he would place his hand on that goat, blame that goat, say, this goat now bears our sins. And what would happen is then they would send that goat out into the wilderness, and eventually it would die of hunger, it would be isolated and alone, it was banished. Vicariously taking all of the sins, all of the shortcomings, all of the wrongdoings of the people and the nation. What happens here is all of the fears the, the idea that the nation in any way could have fallen short of the expectations of Rome. That anything could have been done here. That, in, in other words, it's a way of saying whatever, our nation is safe if this one becomes the one where all of our, our shortcomings, all of our sin, all of our, anything that we could have possibly done wrong before Rome, no Rome, do you see? We've banished that one. He's gone. And they take on the collective guilt and are banished from society. 
And Jesus takes on all of that blame. And what this does is that in the ancient world, it would appease the gods. And what they are doing here is Israel and the people are appeasing their real God. Rome. Caesar. Now catch that what's happening here in the Gospels is that there's a great irony here, or it's actually very much on the nose, it's right there, that this is saying what is going on in each and every human being in this world is that we ultimately seek, see Rome was the epitome of worldly security in the ancient world, and it's saying deep down in every human being, we will in a nanosecond trade in God. Trade in all the promises, trade in who he is, reject him. If we can get whatever that source of salvation and satisfaction and security is in this world. Jesus becomes the scapegoat. Now you might be asking, okay, this is how it happens with Jesus. And here's the thing, this is in us. We all still do this. And, and ultimately, it's to, to appease the gods, but there's some kind of crisis that has to bring it up. And I, I think, and, and I just want to hit this before moving on to the last part, because I, I think when we talk about mod condemnation, cancelization, uh, kind of the, I, I feel like 10 years ago, it was like we're all watching social media, and it was like the cool thing of a flash mob, where it's like somebody started dancing, right? And then, like, somebody's, like, dancing somewhere, and then all the other people start dancing, and pretty soon, like, the whole town is dancing. You're like, are they? <laughs> like, I want to be there. That looks amazing, right? And, and you're like, that's called a flash mob. And everyone's like, this is really cool. And then there was, like, the first few times where somebody began to go, that person, let's get them, like, in the comments section. They post about someone. And then they start gathering around with their verbal rocks and stones, their accusations pointing the finger, baring the teeth, gathering around. You went, these flash mobs aren't so fun anymore. What's happening? One of the things that I, I there's a, there are several layers we could go into here that's coming up with this. I, I think the reason why we feel this acutely is because we live in a moment when all of meaning, the, the crisis, we are hitting, a, remember the catalyst has to be a crisis moment. I think that what's happening is we are hitting a crisis moment that we've talked about several times throughout this series. Remember the, the cut flower illustration? That we're kind of in a moment where we're going, we, we used in Western civilization just assume, hey, we're, we're kind of rooted. Flowers, if you're going to grow, you have to bloom. You have to be rooted in some kind of truth, some kind of worldview, some kind of eternal claims, some kind of standards. And at some point in Western civilization, we said we can actually kind of like when you give somebody flowers on Valentine's Day, you can cut flowers, you can put them in a vase, and it blooms for a time. And it wow, look how beautiful, look how the vitality that you have here, look at the bloom. And then after a while, what happens is the flowers begin to fade and you realize it's because the society, the individual souls, we, we talked about how the cut flower society and the cut flower soul. That after a while, when our souls aren't nurtured by anything, we might have fun for a time, it might seem fun, when we realize our lives are bereft of meaning. Anything bigger than us anything truer, deeper, long-lasting, valuable, beautiful. Everything becomes just subjective desires, subjective wants. That's the only way we can define anything. And we talked about how right now in society it looks like then, at some point you begin warring over where do we replant those flowers? Who gets to say where you replant them? There's a lot of fighting over that. But one of the dynamics, because this crisis is that we have a crisis of meaning, we have a crisis of truth. Right here, when, when Pilate says, what is truth? Right now, wh why he says that to Jesus is because when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, my kingdom is about truth, my kingdom is about true, eternal realities that I'm bringing to bear, that were lost in the fall, and I'm restoring them. And Jesus is talking about this, and Pilate just mumbles to himself and walks away and goes, do you see the crowds, Jesus? Do you, do you see the foment? Do you see the intensity? What in the world? What good is truth? Truth has nothing to do with this right now. And sometimes right now we feel like, what, what, what does truth have to do with any of this right now? 
so how does this happen? We have a crisis of meaning, we have a crisis of truth, and one of the things is it gets amplified by the ability, if you think about it, it's amplified, it's sped up, it's exaggerated, intensified by the ability to immediately form crowds and draw people together digitally. Makes sense, right? You also don't have the added burden of having to face somebody face to face. And so it's easy, it's amplified, it speeds up. You can create echo chambers quicker around the same niche desires, subjective desires that we have. So for example, how does this happen? And, and I'm, I'm going to give this example. And I want us to not immediately jump to see those people who might do that. I want us to think about how these same things can parallel what we do with our parents, what we do with our leaders. It could be a politician, it could be a celebrity. It could be a roommate. It could be anyone who gets in the way of what we desire. Uh, so what happens is we have a crisis of meaning. And we live in a time then because we feel this acutely because it's something we can have shared objects that we desire. And because in a vacuum where everything is kind of up for grabs, you can live however you want, you can live autonomously, desire whatever you want and go get it. That means that it's possible to get something. And then we have a desire, let's say, for something sexual a certain kind of lifestyle that we can have. And so you have that shared de desire, and then you can draw a crowd together where you can share stories about how you can get that thing, and everyone, you're listening to people talk about, yeah, that would be so good if we could have that. You realize that now we can just go get whatever we want. We can live whatever lifestyle we want, except for there's a crisis, which is my family, my church, my, my friends, somebody around me may say to me, they may question it. They may say, doesn't God's word say this? Don't, doesn't, isn't this actually true? Haven't we always said that, that this is what is actually true? And, and isn't it clear that what God says? Or, and, and then what happens is after that crisis, that moment when it's questioned, because obviously we want what we want, we can easily disregard that and call it a threat. Call it a thread, we can call it the cause of all the pain. All the, I, I want this thing, but I feel this tension, and I desire it, but I can't have it. Why can't I have it? Because of the threat, because of the repressive views of my family, because of the conservativeness of my church. And, and it kind of it sticks. You begin to build this narrative then where then you begin to look at everything through a lens of suspicion because you want to be able to disqualify and say, the only reason why I can't have this thing, the reason why I'm in pain, the reason why I'm struggling is because that group won't let me have it. And then what happens is just like what happens with the scapegoat. See, with the scapegoat, they cease to be a person and they become a problem. They become objectified. Literally, you objectify them, objecting onto them your sins. And our family, our friends, cease to be people and they begin to represent a problem. We legitimate it with a narrative. We problematize slight offenses. We claim their motivation is to hurt us. And we interpret our struggle with that of temptation through that lens. They're hurting us. And then what happens is once we problematize, we create the narrative, then we can turn to the echo chamber that we've created. We can turn to others who have the same desire. We can turn to others who are creating the same narratives. And then we can come around and then you can begin to scapegoat those individuals. And so it becomes something of presenting our family publicly on social media as a source of all the wrongs and the evils and the hurts in our life, presenting our friends, presenting some leader, presenting some individual, never taking responsibility for ourselves, but able to placate onto them our sins, our shortcomings. And then what happens is we sit back and relish as they're upon them. What happens when we desire something that's not good, that's not true, that's not beautiful is it doesn't produce a 
virtuous cycle, it produces a vicious cycle. Produces a vicious cycle of mob condemnation. And I, I think this is so in the waters of where we're at. It's so hard to do this. Essentially, here's what I would say. Is there any area where you just feel, I don't like this? We all have things, God's standards, what he calls us to are going to produce things. It's like, I just, this is uncomfortable. I don't like this. I don't feel it. And how quickly do we move towards gathering a crowd to blame someone? I mean, we do it on, in really silly ways. I mean, isn't it interesting how quickly now, like, uh, there was something, what was it? It was like a plane, it was a, it was like American Airlines, okay? And it was like something happening at the airport. And I immediately wanted to go on Twitter, right? And like post like American Airlines, like, right, at American Airlines. You, how could you, you're, you're just about getting money and about oppressing, you know, us normal traveling people, right? And then what I want is I want to put it out there and I want everyone else, everyone else sitting around. I'm like, hey guys, I posted something. They all see it and they all come around and we all, it's like make a scapegoat. There's something in us. What happens is in the end, we rob them of their personhood and objectify them just to gain what we desire. If we're not careful, we do it to God himself as well. Ultimately, I think what's behind a lot of this, we do it with our churches, we do it with leaders, we do it with family members, we do it with friends, we do it with disciples, we do it with usually in people who have been really pivotal in our life, and it's because there's ultimately behind it just a deep anger towards God. And that's exactly what's directed at Jesus. It's exactly what we need to look deeply at in order to break the cycle of mob condemnation. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about mob condemnation is it's so deeply uh, gripping, overwhelming, that we almost even morally don't deal with it as uh, just like it's influencing us. We deal with it like we're determined by it. We almost say, like, you're just swept up by it. Like, it, it almost determines our actions and almost controls us. It's so powerful. So how do you break the spell? It's not so easy just to go, well, when these things come up, don't do it. It's not. The last scene is going to show us how. Look at 38, the second half. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews, Pilate did, and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So you want me to release you, the king of the Jews? According to Jesus, right? They cried out again, not this man, not Jesus, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So they say, we don't, you can imagine when Jesus is standing there, they've got Barabbas standing there, who's this, I don't know, I just picture Barabbas being like the worst looking criminal, right? Like, like his hair sticking up, he's like, <laughs> right? And they're like, we'll take that guy. And he's like, me? <laughs> you know, like, like it's kind of this crazy, like they're going, this guy who's a known criminal, but instead they're going, no, he, you. Can you imagine being Jesus standing there and the crowds are pointing at you, their finger in your face saying, you. We'll take him over you. You're worse than him. We'll gladly have him influencing society. Immediately he's released into the crowds and he starts pickpocketing people, right? And they're like, we'll take him over you. can imagine how, I mean, if you think about it on an individual, like a, 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 a sorry, a, a human level, how disorienting that would be. Like, you, I mean, we talk in our, our culture about like gaslighting. Like, can you imagine that moment, how disorienting that would be? You know, it's interesting what that can produce. There's a, um, Margaret Atwood who wrote the, um, what is it? It's the Handmaid's Tale, you know what I'm talking about? Um, she kind of has this theme like, Puritan scenes, writing characters, timeline, uh, time periods. Um, the reason why, you may not know, uh, Margaret Atwood, her ancestor was a woman named Mary Webster. And Margaret Atwood doesn't know exactly how she's related, but her mother had told her this growing up, that Mary Webster was an ancestor of hers, and Mary Webster was one of the women who was accused as a witch at the Salem Witch Trials. 
Only Mary Webster, when she was claimed to be a witch, wrongfully accused, she was a witch, was hung to be executed. Only the crowd stood around, you're a witch. They hung her up. The interesting thing was that the way justice worked in those days was that if, if you were hung up to die for a crime, you had been executed. If you lived through the night, you then had paid the penalty and you were set free. Mary Webster lived through the night. Margaret, At uh, uh, what's her name? Margaret Atwood, yeah. Uh, was contemplating what it was like for her ancestor to be in that moment, to have the crowds pointing at her, to condemn her. Really what was happening was to make them a scapegoat for all this, the things that that community thought. They became a scapegoat for them, to appease God in a very distorted, or disturbed way, wrong way. When she survived, uh, Margaret Atwood wrote a poem that describes walking through the time of her hanging, being accused and hanging in the gallows. And then you come to the part that says 8 a.m. the next morning when she survived and they all realize it. And it talks about how she falls to the ground and she survived and they're all looking at her. And there are these very chilling, haunting words of what becomes of Mary Webster says this, she says, before I was not a witch, but now I am one. Partially, and I say this because maybe you're one who's been the focus. You felt the crowd standing around pointing at you. You've been in that place. You may be the person who was, has found yourself out of control in being one of the ones in the crowd pointing your finger and realize it later. What it does to a human being, partially, partly because of the gaslighting, partly because if we're social beings, it's very hard to have a crowd standing around you saying you're this and have enough sense of an identity to say, no, I'm not. You become the witch. Partially as well, you're going, well, if you're going to claim that I'm a witch, if I'm going to be held guilty for being a witch, then I will just be one in the bitterness. Why do I say that? One, I say that because this is what it creates in people, and the bitterness when we do this as a society will only get worse and worse and worse. The other thing is, for those of you who have experienced it. How do I not just become this? And, and what's interesting here is Jesus, in the midst of having all of them point their fingers at him, saying, you're worse than a robber, he doesn't become the robber. He doesn't say, you, you call me a robber, I'll become the robber. Why? Jesus instead will be the one who will go, not rob the people of life, but he will be the one who will head to that cross and he will rob the grave to give us life. The exact opposite. How could it be that Jesus could stand there condemned before the crowds and not become the robber in the sense of acting the robber while he does become the robber for our sins? Uh, why? Jesus had the remedy for mob condemnation. Uh, Jesus, as the Son, was in perfect community with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus, as the Son, when he heard the crowds crying out and condemning him, had a voice, had a truth had a word, had a crowd that was closer to him, that held him, that sang over him, that was louder than the voice of that mob. 
at the baptism of Jesus. This is why it's so pivotal that when Jesus' ministry begins, you see Jesus coming up out of the waters, and you, you see it's kind of like the band gets back together again, like the Father's there, the Son's there, the Spirit's there. Like Jesus comes out of the baptism, and what does the Father say? My Son in who I am well pleased. Jesus is the son that when the mob say, you're a robber, you're a criminal. You're not worth being in this society. Get out of here. He has the God of heaven, his heavenly father, who sings over him. My delight is in you. My pleasure is in you. You are mine. I hold you more closely than this crowd can intimidate and suffocate you. I don't just go there because it sounds good. The reason why I go there, in terms of like the father's voice over the son, the reason why I go there is because I think there's an embedded right here a just kind of irony right here in the text. And this is one, I don't know, I've actually gone to a couple people, I'm like, why does no one teach on this? Because it's clear as day, which is this. Jesus is standing here next to someone who again and again they say, this is Barabbas. Bar, son of, Abbas, father. Here you have son of the father. Do you, world, in your desires, will you take this son of the father? Or do you want this one? The one who claims to be the king. The one who claims to be the son of the God. See, what's happening here is this irony of he's being presented to them. And right here next to Jesus is a man with the name son of the father. But only this is not a true son of the father. This is a false worldly son of the father who will rob to give life. Just in the same way that the crowds will rob Jesus of his life in order to give themselves life. We become what we worship. We cry out for what we worship. Only Jesus didn't become, he didn't act the robber, but he did become the robber. Jesus, knowing he is the true son, even though he's rejected, he becomes the robber. He's placed on the cross, taking upon himself all the ways that in our condemnation we rob others of their life in order to give us a self of righteousness, of self-righteousness, of being enough. Jesus was condemned on the cross because our sin is condemnable. Jesus became the ultimate scapegoat, and what he does is he doesn't rob us of life, but instead he robs Satan, he robs the grave, and he gives us life because he is the true son of the Father, and that same, the reason why he can restore us in the world that is constantly in this vicious cycle of mob condemnation is because he's come down from another world, from his Father, with that voice that we were made for in the garden, that presence of God, and he says, if you become one with me, now my father will look at you as his child and say, not only is his delight in me, but it is in you. And the same thing that sang over me up there on that pedestal in front of the crowds, he will sing into your soul. And Jesus says, come to me as the scapegoat in the same way again and again what the Gospels present is will you look to him by faith? Jesus says, come to me. Don't go to the people around you. Don't go to the family members, the friends, the church, the leaders, the celebrities, all the other things and try with the mob to put your sins on them and banish them and think it's dealt with. No, come to me and place your sins on me. And as in the Old Testament, when you look at a sacrifice, you look in its eyes and you would say what your sin was and you would slit its throat as the blood drained and the life drained out of its eyes and you would say, this is my sin and I I have life and forgiveness because of this one. And Jesus stands here and he says, I will become the ultimate scapegoat. I will become the one who does, though, finally banish your sins. If you will come to me and you will look to me upon the cross, bloodied, bearing your sins. And if you will look to me as the blood, the life drains out of me and say, that is the condemnation that I deserve. But he bore it. And he robs the grave and he gives me life because he is the true son.
He says, if you're one with me, then you will walk out of the grave with me and you will become a child of God and the Father will sing that over you as he sang, sings it over me. That's the gospel. That we don't have to get that sense of righteousness, of being enough, that sense of freedom from constantly burning with rage and that mob condemnation, but instead what it does is it begins a virtuous cycle of, yes, condemning the right things, but also a life of delight and love and service and grace and mercy. So real quick, practical, what are ways that you can take steps to tap into that reality? One is coming to Christ, obviously, coming to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, but then limit the voices and seek God daily. One of the things we've been going over again and again is this idea of seeking God. We're talking about seek, eat, and speak. But one of the things is, do we seek God every day where his voice is louder? Listen, as soon as I go on to social media, I immediately, it's like, which mob do you want to join, right? Like, you kind of like get on there and you're immediately like, do I want to go on this one? That would be fun. Ooh, I really don't like that person. That'd feel good, right? Like, you immediately get on. And the thing is, every day, do we first go and see hear from God, hear that voice speaking over us, one of what is good and true and beautiful in the world. So that sense of what is right and wrong is actually calibrated in a healthy way. But also that we hear God's voice in the gospel and what he, who he says we are in Christ rather than what the world says. The second, and how we can find redemption and how we find God dealing with our sins rather than looking for that to be dealt with with others. Uh, second, question the crisis. Uh, what, what is the thing that you're most fearful, anxious of losing and why? Like, be honest with you. A lot of these things are driven by fear. We fear losing something. We fear, and, and let me say this, not just fear losing something. I think one of the things that's beginning to surface, if I'm honest with myself, is the fear of never experiencing something. Losing out. Kind of like the fear of FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. There's something we think is being, the good life is being kept from us. What is that fear? What are we anxious about? What makes us angry? Question what that is. Get to the root of it. Acknowledge it. Name it. And then next, pray for the threat before posting or speaking about the threat. Uh, When you feel angry, self-righteous, are you going before the ultimate judge, the one who will judge, the one in whom righteousness and mercy, justice and mercy are in his hands. He will not err in distributing those, but instead he holds them in his hands. Do you go to him? Do you bring that person before him? Do you bring your heart before him? And then then lastly, confess sin and cast concerns. And when I say confess sin, I mean, again, we confess our sins to God. We don't confess our sins socially. And what I mean by that is I think right now the reason why we kind of do this like verbal vulnerability dump online is because we actually believe that it's, it's the crowds who forgive us. That if the crowds accept us, we're actually deeply forgiven. It's functionally our high priest. So let me just really nail this. If you are like, I'm a Protestant, not a Catholic, because I don't think I should go into a confession box and confess to a priest, stop confessing on social media. It's just a big digital confession box. Instead, are you confessing to God? It's not a bad thing to confess and say, hey, this is where I was wrong online, but is your ultimate sense of forgiveness from God or the crowds? That's going to fundamentally reorient your soul. The next one is cast concerns. What are those concerns? What are those anxieties? Cast them on Christ. Don't cast dispersions on others as a way of soothing soothing your soul. So bring those things to God. And turn to him again and again. We have to functionally do this every day. John 3, 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus was condemned so you, I, we would not have to turn to the mob for life. We don't have to turn to the mob. We can turn to Christ and break the vicious cycle by seeking him. That's how we break free of the mom and begin the virtuous cycle of delight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And and Lord, just how even these dynamics, 
how pertinent they are to today. Lord, give us wisdom in thinking through these things. Lord, I, I ask that for each of us where we where we're tempted, Lord, and we feel that pull. Lord, help us to see why that pull is in us. Why, why is that so magnetic to join in the crowd? Why does it feel so good? Lord, help us to see these things with clear eyes. And Lord, to see what's going on within us. And, and Lord, to see where we're seeking salvation. We're seeking righteousness in, in something that ultimately can't provide, but just leads to more seething versus seeking of you. And so, Lord, would you heal us of these things? Would you give us wisdom, insight, open our eyes? And Lord, would you, would you help us to see, look by faith to Christ? See where he was condemned in our place so that where we are condemnable, we might say, yes, in my sin, it's very condemnable. But ultimately, I find life in Christ and my identity is in him. And Lord, thank you for your grace that you look upon us and you call us your children. Take your delight and your pleasure in us. And Lord, may that captivate our souls and may that be the thing that we mirror to one another so we would encourage one another. We would serve and we would build one another up and it would be a virtuous cycle of life in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.